This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is the World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Talking today with the essayist and historian Steve Fraser about his new book, Class Matters, The Strange Career of an American Delusion. The delusion to which he refers, Steve, is the one about America being a class-less society, egalitarian, born and bred, exceptional among all the nations that ever walked the earth for its being free and clear of class consciousness. How do we maintain a delusion, that delusion, against all the evidence these days pointing to an America bitterly divided into a nation of the haves and the have-nots? Thanks for having me on, Lewis. I think uh, actually nowadays, right now, it's becoming increasingly difficult to sustain that delusion. And in a certain way, uh, Trump's election and the Bernie Sanders phenomenon suggest that uh, sometimes in the course of American history, the reality of class and class conflict breaks through to the surface of our public life. Clearly, that has happened recently. But for most of American history, or a good portion of it, uh, the country has heavily invested in a myth that suggests the opposite, that America, as you already mentioned, is, a, is a, an exceptional society, unique on, on the planet Earth, and was so from its very founding. Uh, it was founded on a, in a virgin continent. That's the, that's the myth. It, it leaves out of account, of course, the thousands of people who've been living here for 10,000 years before uh, colonial settlers arrived. But a virgin continent, abundant in natural resources, with vast amounts of land, a place in which everybody could be his or her, well, not her, certainly, but his own master, uh, something that uh, Captain John Smith uh, of, of, of Jamestown fame promised to colonial settlers in Virginia. The idea was that although Europe was full of steep hierarchies of class and privilege that rewarded not only wealth but political power to a small elite, this would not be true in America, or even if it might poke its ugly head up, it would quickly dissolve. That is to say that if classes did exist, they would exist only momentarily, temporarily, and be dissolved by the endless opportunities the the American continent offered to people. Yes, but we planted the social hierarchy of Europe at the beginning. I mean, the, the, the whole principle of privilege and subordination is, is the one that settles Virginia and also Massachusetts. That's exactly right, but it's not the story we tell ourselves. What we tell ourselves is that Virginia, in particular Plymouth and Jamestown, were inventors not of class, didn't import class privilege and hierarchy. Instead, what they invented, thanks to the genius that sailed on the boats with them, was forms of self-government, democracy, and equality. However, if one looks at, for example, the colonies of Plymouth and Jamestown, what one sees, even on the ships as they were sailing here, is exactly the stratified class society they were bringing with them from Europe. So, for example, Plymouth and Jamestown are businesses. These are trading companies licensed by the Crown of Britain. They have investors 
investors. They have creditors. Uh, they are supposed to make a profit. When they get to the new world, they're under the gun to meet the interest demands, the debts that these trading uh, companies have acquired. In fact, they are very hard-pressed to do so. Plymouth almost fails completely until they discover how lucrative it might be to trade with and exploit the Indian fur trade. And it's fur which keeps the Plymouth colony uh, alive, fur being an international luxury trade of that day. And inside, the, not only are they, is the colony founded on an exploitative relationship with the native population in North America, but inside the colony is, is our set of grandees who rule things, uh, small farmers, indentured servants, uh, very duplicating, if not quite as extensively, the serried ranks of European society. Right. I mean, the property is given by the British crown to aristocrats. But then aristocrats have to find labor to improve the property. Exactly right. That's, that's right. They, they're, they're not about to. They weren't accustomed to in the old world, and they're not going to about to do it in the new world, labor themselves. They're going to find populations, and there are plenty of them, especially in England in the, in the 17th century. It's, it's undergoing a severe economic decline. There are, there are thousands and thousands of landless laborers being kicked off the land by the enclosure movements. The craftsmen are finding themselves out of work in the English Depression. So there are plenty of people who are, are willing to ship uh, aboard the Mayflower or, or, or the Arabella or these ships, come to the New World and work, and work for as, as kind of semi-unfree labor, as indentured labor for a period of time, hoping that perhaps in the future they'll, they'll be able to improve their social position. In, in Jacobean England, these people were referred to as waste people. Yeah. Well, waste people, vagabonds, yeah. uh, and they were think, thought of as very dangerous. They were tramping the countryside, footloose, had no, had no patron to uh, discipline them, uh, were, and, and were thought of as a kind of social danger to the English yeah. order. And this was a great way of eliminating that order and providing a labor force for this new world. But we hear about the Mayflower Compact as, as – as, actually, the Mayflower, Mayflower Compact is, is, a, is a way of trying to soothe some of the social conflicts that had already emerged on the ship on the way over from England. It is far from being an institution of self-government. That, for example, uh, everybody has a share, but some – in the colonies – remember, these are trading companies – and. In fact, they become publicly traded companies back in the day, and some people have a lot more shares and therefore a lot more say in what goes on in the colonies than other people, and some of whom are not shareholders at all. You say that the – talk about the Constitution and, and, and how it maintains the, the uh, delusion. I mean, you talk about the promise of individual emancipation has to be kept by denying – social eman emancipation to millions of people. I mean, how does that work out in the Constitution? Well, colonial America, just before the revolution and the Constitution, is a commercial civilization. That's, that's what it's set up to do, to trade on the world markets. The dominant classes in America are merchants, merchant bankers, uh, uh, big landowners, uh, and others. Uh, they want to protect their commercial interests, their right to uh, property, and so on. After the revolution succeeds, there are enormous popular threats to the rights of property, represented by popular rebellions. For example, small farmers are falling into debt to the larger uh, merchants of the East Coast and bankers of the East Coast. These debts are ruinous. They're being evicted. 
there are uprisings in the colonies. Shays' Rebellion is the most famous of that, an uprising of Massachusetts farmers uh, demanding that either the debts be canceled or that paper currency be issued so it's easier to pay off your debt or that there be a moratorium on these debts. These are perceived by the elites of America as very dangerous uh, tendencies in the American population. And there are also all kinds of uh, uh, thousands of, of small farmers and villagers living in the western part of what is then uh, colonial or, or post-revolutionary America who aren't involved in, the, in commercial transactions at all but fear being swept into the orbit of that commercial life. And so you have these popular uprisings. You have people who are very accustomed to local democracy, to controlling their own affairs, and you have a very worried uh, uh, elite uh, that sees this as ungovernable and as a threat to property rights. So the Constitution is born out of that dilemma. Yes, John Adams thinks of democracy as mobocracy. I yeah. mean, and uh, certain to destroy civilization. And, and John Jay's Supreme Court first chief justice says the people who own the country ought to govern it. Exactly. And that's perceived exactly that way by all kinds of ordinary people who perceive these people as counter-revolutionary aristocrats who want to restore the old order of things, uh, the old Tory order of things. In fact, they call them Tory aristocrats, even though they are in our eyes, in the, in the mythic eyes of American history, the founding fathers, whose sole purpose, according to the myth, is to establish democratic constitutional government and a government that protects the civil rights and civil liberties of its citizens. Those claims have truth to them. There is a certain truth to, the, to for example, the Bill of Rights, which does indeed protect the civil, right, civil liberties of people. But the larger motivation for the Constitution is the riotous social turmoil that precedes it and the threat that turmoil represents to property in America. And so you get a constitution which makes it uh, impossible to declare these moratoriums on debt, which, est which establishes the right of the the sole right of the federal government to pass tariffs to protect uh, infant industry in America. It does all sorts of things to protect property rights uh, from that point on. So, but, and so Jefferson's idea of American exceptionalism, which eventually becomes Lincoln's government of the people, by the people, and for the people, is, is the cover story. It's the cover story, but it's also has it's not fake news. That is to say, there's a reality to that cover story, namely that there is an abundant continent out there. And, and what gives that myth traction and real bite into reality is the real prospect that you can escape uh, that kind of subordination, that political domination by, as, 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 uh, as Horace Greeley once said, go west, young man. There's a certain truth to that. Go out, get your own piece of land, become a homesteader, uh, cross the Appalachians during this early period, set yourself as an, uh, as an independent farmer. The problem is, and Jefferson believes that. He buys Louisiana with the social prospect of that happening, this vast new territory. Problem is, the life expectancy of that is much, much shorter than Jefferson ever imagined. He thought generations and generations would live off of that free land, but really it lasts about one generation. By the time you get to the second half of the 19th century, class conflict is all over the, the country. I mean, we've got the army eliminating Indians, we've got Negroes being lynched in the South, and we've got violent uh, labor confrontation in, in the Northeast. Yes. So against this uh, clear 
demonstration of class conflict, what's the myth they come up with? The, the, and, and you suggest the myth of the cowboy. Yes, there are two that they come up with. The myth of the cowboy. The cowboy in, in real life, well, the myth of the cowboy is that he's a self-reliant, uh, independent, he's, the, he's in fact the epitome of that American worship of self-reliant independence. There's a certain kind of subtext of masculine independence to the cowboy. He, he, he depends on nobody uh, and, uh, and, and treasures his independence. The reality of the cowboy in, in sort of mid-late 19th century America is that he's a kind of a rural proletarian. He's He's a, he's a footloose kind of vagabond. He may have lost his land either in the a lot of cowboys or ex-Confederates, although there are plenty of cowboys from the north as well, uh, who were kicked off their land either by plantation owners or by big landlords in, in, in the north. They move west and they work increasingly. Uh, either they come from the east to the West and work for big ranching companies, which are gigantic. I mean, million-acre ranches, the King Ranch, for example, or the XIT Ranch. These are vast uh, uh, cattle empires. They are subjected to a very rigorous discipline. Their work is extremely dangerous. Uh, they they uh, uh, have uh, their pay is terrible. Their life is precarious. Once a cattle during the age of the Great Cattle Drive, which went two, three thousand miles across the continent, the end of that cattle drive, the cowboy has no work. He may get hired on by another another cattle drive later, or he may not. Um, so this is sp- similar to our gig economy. Yeah, it's like yeah. a gig economy. It's kind of rural gig economy. But the romance is is quite the opposite. You know, he's out there singing to the cows and you know strumming his guitar and 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 just uh, you know soaking in the landscape. But in fact, he's a kind of he's a kind of rural working class character. The cowboy myth, though, is more powerful than he, than the real he, because it, 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 it enamors a whole nation and stands for America in a certain way as the land of this kind of independence. And I can remember myself uh, when I was a little boy, I, all I wanted to be was a cowboy, uh, I, I, you know, and, and live this life of freedom and independence. Uh, when, I, when I became a, a father for the first time, I used to sing cowboy songs to my son and then later to my, my daughter, um, because I, too, bought into as millions of Americans. My father was an immigrant Jew who bought into the American cowboy myth. He used to sing those songs to me. So well, the myth in large part is created by immigrant Jews in Hollywood. It is, exactly. And, <laughs> and, and one, of, one reason it's so powerful is because it belies the reality of the, of the real social life. Uh, 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 this is a society which is becoming increasingly urbanized, increasingly conflicted by a uh, uh, subject to class conflict. The kind of violence America is by far, by far the most violently class ridden society of any in the West, much more violent than Europe. Uh, so that reality of, of, of exploitation, of, of company and federal government and state government violence against workers, uh, against urban squalor and congestion, against abject poverty of the kind that Jacob Reese uh, so uh, uh, brilliantly and eloquently documented and photographed. All of these things get submerged in the myth of the cowboy that really America is because the cowboy myth is happening right then in the teeth of all of that. But instead you get this image of America as this kind of land of the free and the bold and the courageous um, which the cowboy epitomizes. And in fact, I mean, the cowboy is like the figure in 
Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times. He's he's a cog in in a machine. Yes, he really is a cog in a machine. A br- brutally difficult life, and that life uh, is true even to to the, to this day. To the degree there are cowboys left, and there are, I know some personally. Uh, their life is harsh. It's as it was back then. It's brutal on their bodies. Uh, accidents are kind of like they used to be in, in industrial America. Uh, you, you break bones, and you and you you're trampled, and you're you're gored by steers, and and, and you're out in the freezing cold and blizzards and so on. It's extremely difficult work. Talk about now, how do, how do you fit into your narrative of the New Deal? I mean, where, that comes up out, out of the uh, you know, crash of 1929 and the Great Depression and, and Roosevelt's New Deal, and we get some reality into we get the, a good bit, good, yeah. good dose of reality, and and what I argue in my book is that it's not as if class is forever and at all times banished from consciousness. It's that really the bulk of American history and its mythic core banishes class from American consciousness. But there are times we're living through one now, and the Great Depression was another one when when the reality of class of a class-divided, profoundly unequal society breaks through to the surface. Can't help but things are so, are, are so antagonistic, so abrasive. The, the Gilded Age was one such time when you have the, during, during the reign of the cowboy, there were these violent yeah. strikes. All over the, the New Deal is another, where you have this Great Depression. It's the most traumatic moment in American public life, except for the Civil War. Millions upon millions and millions of people are unemployed. They're evicted from their homes. They're losing their farms. Uh, uh, they're desperate. And capitalism, in the eyes of all kinds of people, seems to be facing a terminal breakdown crisis. And so that you have even our most august and esteemed politicians, obviously Franklin Roosevelt being the most renowned, denouncing economic royalists and Tories of industry. And and in his famous 1936 uh, final campaign address at Madison Square Garden saying, the rich hate me and I welcome their hatred. Uh, that is a moment in which in which America is extremely conscious of class and uh, the New Deal reforms of that era, whether the Wagner Act or or the various forms of financial and, and, and corporate regulation or the Social Security Act and so on, are recognitions that a savage capitalism has existed and ruined the lives and is ruining the lives of millions of ordinary people and can't be, and it will, if it continues in that way, will collapse. And so Roosevelt and others reform-minded folk uh, in elite sectors of American society come to that belated recognition and begin to make the kinds of reforms which will at least stabilize. Not, they're not going to abolish capitalism. They have no interest in doing that. They're not motivated that way. But they do realize that unless you t- take serious, not not verbal promises and, ver- and, and myth-making, but real changes in the way power is distributed, in the way people's social security is protected, you'll, you'll, have, you'll have chaos. And, and that's what you saw in it for a while in the 30s, mass strikes, general strikes, and so on. But then the, the awareness of the reality of social class and conflict is... is uh once again covered over not only with World War II, but, but more importantly with the Cold War yeah. and, and, and the Russians. How, do, how, how does that work? Yeah, you, you began by asking me, why is this myth so tenacious? And I think part of the reason is that, that part of it is a matter of cultural intimidation. We leave World War II and are immediately enjoined in a Cold War against the Soviet Union. And that Cold War is effects are much more damaging 
domestically to our political and cultural life than it ever was to the Soviet Union. And the reason for that is that anti-communism becomes the blanket way to deny all talk, to banish from our language, all talk of class conflict. If you talk about class conflict, that means you're a red. And so don't talk about that, because if you do talk about that, you will lose your job. Uh, you'll be stigmatized here and there. Uh, you'll be called up before Senator McCarthy's uh, committee. So this is a horrible linguistic cultural purge of our conscious being, that we become afraid, even things as relatively innocuous as we see them today, civil rights, are tarred with this red brush, uh, that, the, that they, are, they are really communist, insidious forms of communist infiltration and undermining of the American, American way. So this is a very long-lasting kind of toxin in the American cultural bloodstream. And at the same time, something else is happening in post-war America, which entrenches this notion that we are class. And that is consumer culture and mass consumption economy. We are an abundant society. There's no denying that. That is part of the reason class. There's a famous historian who once wrote a book called People of Plenty. And, he, and his argument in that book is that the plenty that America has indeed given rise to has, has, has been able to submerge for various times class conflict. There's no question that that is true after World War II when mass consumption, uh, the mass consumption economy really exfoliates all across the country and, the, and, and, and promises a classless paradise. And the best representative of that view is of all people, Richard Nixon, who in 1959 in Moscow confronts, he's vice president then, Mick Nixon, the Soviet premier, Nikita Khrushchev, in a model kitchen, in a model ranch house at the American exhibit uh, in, in, in Moscow. And they face off against each other. And the irony of that debate, I, I love this, it's so wonderful, is that Nixon is the one who is essentially saying to Khrushchev, we are the communists. See, we have abolished all classes in America. Everybody has a great standard of living. We don't need to be talking about the rich against the poor, the 1% against the 99%. We've, we solved that problem. So this is an amazing thing. This arch anti-communist, Nixon, built his po political career by red-baiting his opposition. He here he is in Moscow making the claim uh, that we really have achieved this classless nirvana. And of course, that's a lie. And, and it's, it becomes a lie that's increasingly exposed a few years later in the 60s. It's exposed in the South, of course, with uh, the, 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 the miserable conditions, the apartheid regime in the South. You were, you were part of that. You were a Freedom Rider in Mississippi in 1964. That is correct. I, I was part of what, what is called Mississippi Freedom Summer. A bunch of northern college kids volunteered to go down to Mississippi, which was the god-awfulest place on earth. I mean, just the worst of all these southern states, to try to build uh, a movement for the right to vote. Uh, in, in particular, it was, it was organized something called the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party to challenge the credentials of the normal state party, which was all white, uh, at the Democratic Party convention in 64 in Atlantic City. And I went down uh, south, and um, it was the most profound exp political experience in my life. I'll never forget it. And mainly I won't forget it because of the enormous social courage, the bravery uh, of, of, of people, of local people, to stand up against the most intimidating, violent, oppressive regime which they had lived under for generations in the South, uh, to triumph over the fear that that creates, to triumph over the fatalism that it inspires in people, that there's no other way, this is the way life is, 
uh, that it triumphs over their own self-contempt. You know, if you're treated like crap for your life and your ancestors' life, you begin to internalize that. Yeah. And, and it's a horror. It's, in a way, it's the most damaging thing. I don't mean to minimize the physical things, the lynchings and so on, but it's a horrible wound to the psyche. You have to triumph over all of that to ta- and, and put everything at risk. Not only your livelihood, but your life if you're living in Mississippi in 1964. So for me to see people do that was stunning. And I'll, 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 never, I'll never ever forget it. And it, what it does, to, what it showed me is that there are moments then and previous to then and maybe again in the future when people collectively resist and it empowers each one of them. Each one of them finds a new self-confidence by virtue of the fact of being together. And I, and I, and I, it's a kind of, I, I, I believe it or not, it's a sensual kind of feeling. It isn't some kind of, uh, for me anyway, I'm not a religious guy. It's just a kind of identification with your fellow beings and uh, that you can you can invent a new world. That world does not have to be like this. But this was the lie, a part of the lie, of the Nixon thing about we're, we're paradise on earth, we have no classes. Uh, apartheid is the most class-ridden. I mean, it's, it's, it's medieval. Uh, it's not even modern class uh, uh, oppression and exploitation. And then, of course, the movement spreads north, and, and that's a key thing. Because the movement in the 60s uh, uh, that spreads into the black ghettos of uh, every ghetto and is not about the right to vote. They've got the right to vote. The question is, what good does it do? If it, and, and I had always asked my, myself this question. Even though in the South there was no right to vote, it was important to win that right, and it's a great triumph. Still, it's not enough. Formal equality before the law, which is what the Civil Rights Movement was trying to achieve and did achieve in the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act and so on, nonetheless does not speak to the gross inequalities and subordinations that exist outside that formal equality. And, and that was what the uprisings in northern ghettos in the 60s, all through the 60s, began to say. And, and King knew this to be the case. When he gives the I Have a Dream speech... This is uh, Martin Luther King in 1963 yes, in Washington. Yes, and I was at okay. that march, and okay. of course it's one of the... It may probably next to the Gettysburg Address, the most famous address in America. All right, we'll life. talk about that. I mean, analyze that. Yes, well, King gives this famous speech, which is now... Here's the irony. The I Have a Dream speech, which says that you shall not be uh, discriminated against on the basis of your origins or skin color and so on, is a, is a kind of American universal. And actually, although denied in reality, it was always part of it. I mean, King is quoting Jefferson. Uh, you know, it was always part of the American credo, even though in reality it was denied in places like the South for women for obviously for 100 years, more than 100 years and so on. But what King seems to place his faith in in that, in that, I have a dream. What is the dream? The dream is once you achieve formal equality, problem solved. That's basically the dream. Once everybody has an equal chance at that classless dream of be joining classless America, then you've solved the problem. And I think even King realized somewhat later in his life, in the final years before he was killed, that that was not the case. And that, in fact, millions of people living in abject poverty in American metropolitan centers had the vote and that you needed to do something else. You needed to achieve economic as well as political democracy. You had to challenge the centers of 
of power in the economy, which themselves exercised enormous power over the political system, that you can't have any kind of democracy that amounts to anything unless you are, are prepared to take on those centers of economic power, democratize the economy, redistribute wealth. That's what the Poor People's Campaign was supposed to be about just a short time before he was killed. Uh, and, and King re- realizes that. But that is kind of the last time until maybe very recently, that that consciousness has been part of American uh, uh, public life. Right. I mean, because it was the bait and, the bait and switch was identity politics. Yes, exactly. Uh, take the economic motive out of it. Take it uh, out of it, right. Make it all about race, and it's not all about race. It's not all about race, and I think without being cynical or critical about it, if you examine the social statistics, what identity politics achieved was an upward mobility which is to be welcomed by various kinds of minorities, particularly African American, but not only them. It gave a thin strata of a uh, and enlarge that strata of a kind of middle class professional government worker etc uh, set of opportunities to get educated and, and, and get a college education which they had always been denied on account of their race but it left behind the vast majority of those working class or impoverished or workless minorities um, and, but it, it became the sole way to deal with questions of equality. If if you were if your identity was recognized, if you were given the formal equality, if you were given affirmative action or whatever the thing was, all of which is great, uh, that would solve the problem. Well, we know now, uh, bitterly, that that, that 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 is not the case. Yeah, you have freedom, but you can't eat it. You can't eat it. And, and in fact, there's a, a, a sharecropper quoted in a book that I read in preparing this book, which says exactly that. Freedom is great, but you, you know, uh, but a dollar is also quite useful. <laughs> All right. Steve, I think this is a marvelous book. Where, but where, where are we now? I mean, what good does it do? Uh, you say the myth of American classlessness is destructive. So do we continue to uh, delude ourselves? Yeah, I think we do, and I think we're in a very dangerous place right now. Very dangerous, because although I began this interview by saying, and I think it's true, that class is once again bubbling to the surface of our public life, it's taking on some very toxic forms. Racism is a kind of class consciousness, in my view. That is to say, racism and other kinds of xenophobia, for example, is a way for people who've gotten a kind of raw deal let us say those Trump white working class, to the degree his base is a white working class base, to the degree that they have gotten a bad deal, they've been deindustrialized out of whole ways of life, forget their livelihoods, they've been, they've been treated with contempt uh, by uh, elite America, bipartisan elite America has no time for them, uh, they know that, uh, but their anger and their resentment has taken on, for some of them, a very toxic form, which is this kind of blame the weak, blame someone weaker than yourself for that problem. That's a class consciousness. You're, you're, you're angry that you're being treated badly. You don't have the political say. You're cynical about the political system. You should be. It's utterly corrupt. Uh, you know that your needs aren't being met, uh, and you know the elites don't care. That's class consciousness. But who do you blame? You blame uh, the welfare mother or the, the undocumented immigrant or whatever, because uh, they're weak, and, and that's a very dangerous thing. We're in a dangerous time. Now, 
The other side of that equation, for me anyway, is, is the Bernie Sanders phenomenon, speaking broadly. That it, it, one of the most fascinating things to me during the primary campaign, and this was in story after story and survey after survey, people were puzzled out there as they were uh, about to vote in the primary. Who should I vote for, Trump or Sanders? Now, that's it, to some of us, it's like, wow, how could they such wildly opposite choices, but they really weren't opposite choices. One was a healthy expression of their class consciousness. Sanders, a guy who's ready to take on and means it. And they know he means it. That's why he's the most popular politician in America. He's the only one anybody really <laughs> believes means what he says, because uh, he's been saying it for 30, 40 years, so they say he must mean this. That's a healthy expression of class consciousness. Uh, deal with the banks, deal with the big corporations, get money out of politics. He means that. And, and they responded to it. But then Trump seems to be saying some of the same kinds of things. You know, he's, he's a working class guy. He's irreverent about the establishment. He denounces them. They hate him and all that kind of stuff. When in fact, he's really a plutocrat um, and, and could care less about working people. But he, 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 rings, those, he rings those bells and some people uh, responded there. So what I'm saying is, this is that's a dangerous time. It means that the, as as a poet once said, the center cannot hold. It's, it's kind of not holding right now. Uh, that is the kind of neoliberal bipartisan establishment that ruled things for a couple of generations is finding it more and more difficult here and obviously in Europe as well to prevail. That's promising and dangerous. It's kind of like the interwar years to me, in, in my way of thinking, in Europe, uh, where you had huge left-wing movements and a huge Nazi movement. And they used to compete those two movements for the I same know. members. Violently in the streets Violently of Berlin. Violently in the streets. They, they, go, they actually, sometimes they would hold joint rallies together and then kill each other in the streets afterwards. Yeah, yeah. And, and I don't mean we're there here, but we're looking at a situation not dissimilar to that. When class is rising to the surface, it's a question of what form it takes, that class consciousness. But however we're going to, to deal with it, to deal with it, the best way or the first step is to admit that it exists. Yes, I agree. It's, it's, it's our collective, in our collective interest of our mental health, our collective mental health, to be, to face the reality. And we're, the, the scary thing today is fake news. That they say that people really do not, don't know what the truth is and have a, find a lot of difficulty more than normally of really looking the truth in the face and accepting it as true. And that's what, that's what worries me because you're right. You have to first recognize there's a problem and not delude yourself that you solved it. Well, that's why your book is so good, Steve Fraser. I've been talking to him today about his new book, Class Matters, The Strange Career of an American Delusion. The book is an extremely, in my view, healthy <laughs> antidote to folly. Thank you very much, Louis. Appreciate it. Thank that. you, Steve. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.